This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think Stephen felt the same way. He, he felt that, that, that people would find science beautiful, and it was beautiful and deep and important to the human experience, but there weren't a lot of people uh, making it accessible. You're listening to a Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the production editor of BBC Focus magazine. This month, the world lost a giant. Professor Stephen Hawking, the galaxy's best-known scientist and most unlikely cultural icon, died on Wednesday the 14th of March at his home in Cambridge. We spent the day since speaking to those who knew Hawking, and one clear theme emerges. Hawking was a stubborn man. Of course, he was funny and smart. That was clear for the world to see. But perhaps, to those of us watching from afar, his radiance hid the vital ingredient to his genius, true grit. But as the number of words he could communicate per minute dwindled, his jokes never did. It was this same resolve that would drive him, sometimes to the exasperation of his colleagues, to spend years writing and rewriting his books so that he could share the elegance of the universe with others. And ultimately, it was the sheer strength of will, rather than a single eureka moment, that would propel him through the maths that underlined his work. Here, we speak to four people who knew Professor Stephen Hawking to tell us about his life, his work and his legacy. First up, Daniel Bennett, the editor of BBC Focus magazine, chats to physicist Leonard Molodinow. Leonard worked with Hawking on two books, A Brief History of Time and The Grand Design. 
How did you first come to meet Stephen and, and work with him? Um, well, actually, the first time I met him was at Princeton in the 70s when he gave a talk, but he could still speak. And he, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a physicist, I guess you know I'm a physicist, so I was just at a regular talk that he gave. And uh, he had a graduate student who would stand next to him and translate, because even though he could speak, it was kind of garbled. Uh, but uh, we got working together after he read my first book, um, uh, Euclid's Window, and he he liked it apparently, and was looking for someone to work with that he he liked uh, the way they wrote, and who also <laughs> was a physicist. Or so there's not many of them, I guess. But anyway, he he liked the book, and and so he he contacted me and asked if I wanted to, to work with him. So <laughs> I didn't have to think too long about that one. <laughs> and and so, what was your work with him like? Uh, how how did you work together? Well, we would do certain things apart, and then we would be together uh, for other times and sit side by side, really elbow to elbow, and uh, and go over every every word. So, um, you know, he came. I'm I'm in the. I was at the time on the faculty at Caltech, and he comes to Caltech every year, or he used to. For I mean, obviously he used to, but he used to until his last few years of his life. He came. I would say four weeks roughly speaking about a month a year every year so he so we would work pretty intensely for that month and then i would go out to cambridge uh i don't remember two or three times a, a year every quarter let's say for a right like roughly a week usually and um we'd do the same thing there and we would just start <clears throat> in the morning and sit there till you know like quit about 8 p.m and go have dinner and together and um so when you know we would when we were apart, we would each have our assignment to write a certain section, or you know, and, and then when we were together, we would uh, uh, go over each other's stuff, and uh, you know that was kind of the process. So what was he like to to write with as a as a writing partner? Well, um, I'm just <laughs> I think that. A two-hour answer, but uh, let's see. Yeah, there's a lot of angles to it. First of all, there's the you know the the experience of of, of working with him. So, so because of the way he he communicated at the time, for most of the time when we were together, there was about six words a minute. It started out at six, it went down to like one or two. Mm-hmm. Then he changed his method of communication, went back up to about six, and gradually went down again. Um, so I'm sure you know how he communicated. I don't have yeah. to go into that, but. No. Um, so, you know, it would take minutes for each word. Uh, I mean, at first I would sit there and, uh, you know, I'm getting used to it. I don't know what to do. I'm daydreaming. I'm, I don't know, you know, <laughs> while I'm waiting for his answer. And, and then I realized I'm sick, sit right next to him, really close to him. I can actually see his screen. He didn't seem to mind that. So then before he would finish the sentence, I could answer it if I knew what he was saying. Or more importantly, I could start thinking about what he's saying before he said it. So, you know, in normal, when you and I are speaking, we speak. We we are we don't think we I mean we you know we we, we just give thoughts off the top of our head more or less uh, there may be something beneath that in our head somewhere that it's coming from but we answer immediately and with him you could get a few minutes to think you know as as his uh, what he was going to say started to take shape you could start thinking about it. so it was a totally you know much deeper um, more like profound discussions because yeah. you actually contemplate things so that's you know. I got used to that and it was, uh, that was very different and very good. And, uh, you know, at other times, if I, 
I, I could just sit there and also get into a very Zen-like state, you know, you just got very relaxed with it. And so that was, you know, that was interesting. And um, he, even though everything was so difficult for him, it was striking how he, he did not let anything go. I mean, we would argue over, over individual words and, you know, um, for me, the argument uh, wasn't that hard to do because I'm speaking, but, you know, he, he would have to go through a, a lot of uh, work to, present his side. So, but he's never gave up. I mean, he, he was, you know, he, as he said, his, one of his best and worst qualities was stubbornness. So, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't think he could have got through life if he wasn't stubborn and look at all the barriers he had, physical barriers to, to existence, you know, and, um, yeah. and the other major quality was uh, humor. He had an amazing sense of humor. He could still smile. He had a really big smile. Um, he was very expressive with his face. So you could give yes or no questions. He had expressions he gave for yes or no. I mean, he had one of them. I've quoted this in my book. I don't remember exactly what his assistant said, but, you know, it was something like that steely, steely look of disdain or something. <laughs> he really didn't like what you said. I mean, he could, he could, um, it wasn't just yes or no. He could definitely um, give you a super yes and a super no. Right. <laughs> super no, super no yeah. So, um, you, yeah, you really knew when you yeah. said the wrong thing. Yeah, or, yeah, exactly. Um, right, either either sometimes because it well, there was there was one face for what you said was stupid, which I don't know if he did that on purpose, but you could tell that he was thinking that. There's another face for what you said irritated him. <laughs> Something that just struck me in what you said there, given you know how much you know. So you said he was obviously a, a kind of stubborn. Uh, in, in in a positive way, you know, he 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 stuck to his guns. So he always put a lot of time and thought into what he said. W would you only talk about the work, or what other things did you? Oh talk no, about? no, we talked about everything. You know, from uh, the Israel situation, uh, American politics, uh, British politics. You know, we we did we we know we went to movies together. Uh, uh, you know, just talked about whatever. So it was like, you know, because we kind of became friends. Well, we, we did definitely became friends at some, you know, and, and um, so, uh, yeah, he would talk about anything. And he, you know, I, I sometimes he'd be sitting next to him and uh, waiting for some profound or some very heated argument and it would come out as a joke. <laughs> He's waiting five minutes, you know, and it's like, oh, it's a joke. Some punchline. <laughs> yeah. And then you could play 20 questions. Oh, one thing that you're, uh, you have to get the knack of, of, you know, you could answer his questions or his comments before he finished them because he was writing them. And that was a good thing. And, it, it went, you know, if, if you were if you were right, it was a good thing because it saved him having to finish, you know, writing it out. On the other hand, if you were wrong, <laughs> that, 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 you know, would, would be annoying to him. So, um, so, you know, you see him typing and I go, oh, you're saying da, da, da. And. If he's not saying that, you know, <laughs> I remember, you know, when I was first like trying that method, I, I would get like get it wrong three times in a row. He would like roll his eyes, <laughs> like shut up. Or <laughs> Occasionally, um, he would hit the wrong thing and a random sentence would come out. Or sometimes the computer would just generate random, put random things together. I, I think it was, um, I don't remember anymore, but I think it was maybe the, 
you know, the stuff he had deleted would be all there in some cache and it would just start reading that. But you'd be talking to him and it would, you know, you'd say, so, uh, yeah, so are we going to the curry place for dinner tonight or you want to eat at your house? And, and he'd go, um, and it, the answer would be, you know, the, the tree frog of the uh, supernova <laughs> exploded uh, Aristotle. <laughs> and it could be pretty hilarious sometimes, yeah. Mm. I, mean, I mean, yeah, do you have, like, what, what are some of your, and I'm, this, this is a really, you know, on-the-spot question, and, I'm, you know, I'm sure you'll go away and come up things, but what are some of your, you know, when you think about him, some of your favourite memories? Um, oh, well... One was the, uh, the the night we finished uh, Grand Design. We had been working on it for four years, and you know he showed no no sign uh, of wanting to finish it <laughs> <laughs> through those four years, and we kept pushing the deadline. I mean, I think we originally were supposed to do it in a year and a half, and finally the publisher just told us we're publishing it. You know, we're announcing it for next whatever. I don't remember when it came out. We're announcing, I think, for next September. Uh, so we expect they have, you know, it's like, it's like an ultimatum, really. But they, they didn't say it in a bad way. They just kind of very matter of fact, they said, you know, we put it on the schedule uh, for next. Uh, so so if it's not there by May 15th at 8 p.m. or something. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, uh, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know what they said, but something like that, you know. So we finished at 8 p.m. on May 5th, whenever they said exactly the minute. <laughs> and I remember we had a little fight down to the minute about some little thing and we managed to, you know, and, and he's, yeah, I don't know. And then I want to, you know, when it's all over, he says, I'm saying, Oh my God, you know, cause I, I was thinking oh, many times we were never going to finish this book. This is just going to be my lifetime project. And of course I was just doing stuff in between and so was, and he was, but you know, he had no, absolutely no, you know, he, he and if ever I brought up, Hey, you know, we got to finish this book sometime. Shouldn't we be like, pushing on, you know, not like massaging this chapter for, you know, and I'm a, a major rewriter. I rewrite 47 times, but you know, he's even worse. Well, it's also because he, you know, he's so slow at it because of his, uh, you know, illness. So, you know, he would, his answer would always be, Nope, doesn't matter when it's done as long as it's good. You know? So, <laughs> so then after, um, after, uh, you know, that, hour ticked by and we literally on that minute, which, you know, I'm sure we could have gotten an extra 10 minutes after four years, but on that minute, we, we, we finished, you know, he, he kind of like steered the ship so that on that minute we would agree on the final point. And, um, and then he says to me, I said, wow, I can't believe we ever, we, we made it. He said, then he says, good thing we had the deadline or I would have never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, why, why didn't you tell me this two years ago? I would have had to give us a deadline. <laughs> was that because he just was enjoying it or because he just yeah. was a, a, like a rewriter? Well, I think he, he, he was enjoying it and, and he's a perfectionist, but I think both, yeah. I was enjoying it too, but I was also going nuts because, you know, had to make a living and I had other stuff to do and, <laughs> you know, going back and, you know, just kind of, you know, it seemed like my... um it just seemed like this would be a permanent position, you know, but, but at some point <laughs> unpaid, I mean, you get in advance, but you know, uh, <laughs> you don't have, well, eventually I guess they're going to ask for the money back if you don't ever turn in a book, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, but you know, when you're, you know, Steven, so they, they, you know, I mean, that was, uh, we spent more than double what we were supposed to spend on it and Hey, it all turned out good. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, 
anyway, so that was one. Another good story was we went, uh, one of his carers uh, asked me if I wanted to go punting down the cam, which I guess I don't have to tell you what that means. But here in the States, I always have to explain, take most of the stories explaining what that means. So, so we, um, you know, so I asked Stephen if he wanted to come thinking, you know, you know, thinking it was a long shot because, you know, well, for obvious reasons. So, and he said, sure. So the next day uh, uh, we, we went, we did that, and you know that involved uh, parking the wheelchair up at the top of this long—I don't—I don't want to call it a staircase—a long trail of wooden of, of uh, stone steps, right? Gosh, yeah. And and it's not wheelchair accessible, so we had to park it up at the top, carry him down all these steps to the uh, you know where where the boats launch, and I started out carrying him because I, I could carry him myself. You know, uh, he, I forgot what he weighed, like 95 pounds or something. And so, but then they didn't like the way, you know, it's hard. I mean, I would carry him sometimes in, in, in his office, like to the couch or something, but, but to carry him down all that is a bit of a, you know, exercise and, and you know, you have to have his net head, right. You guys can't have his head flopping around. So mm-hmm. his care said, no, 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 put him down. We're going to do it. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, so they had these two kids, you know, so, so he's like 95 pounds. They're each like 95 pounds. Here I am like 185 pounds and I'm, you know, fairly um, muscular. At least I work out, lift weights and stuff. And, yeah. and they, they give me their purses to hold one of which was pink. <laughs> So I have these two little women carrying this guy down this thing, followed by a guy holding a pink purse, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, and we get down to the, you know, thing and, you know, and you know how that works. The guy, I forgot who was doing it. I don't think they supplied the person. I think one of us, one of the group was doing the pole, whatever you call it. What is that called? The punting. And, you know, you could, like I said, oh, you try. I stood up there. And, oh, my God, I'm going to fall off. And they said, yeah, and the boats can tip over, too. And it's a flat boat. And, he, you know, if it tipped over, I kept thinking, my God, if we tip this over, he's dead. I mean, there's nothing you can do. I mean, like, even if it's a normal person, it's hard to save a person who cast yeah, up. Yeah. Totally How are you going to do that? So, so um, you know, and, you know, he's fine. He has his head on one of their laps. And they're turning, you know, he can't, when he look, when his eyes go to the right, they turn his head to follow his eyes, you know, <laughs> his eyes go to the left, they turn his head. And I don't know, there were strawberries and champagne. It was a very nice uh, time, but I mean, I'm thinking that, uh, of course, you know, he wanted to go up into space and he went on the vomit comet and he was yeah. very intrepid. So it was very interesting because to me, it was, that was a very vulnerable situation. You could have dropped him, he could have fallen off the boat or the boat tipped over or I don't know. This is one of the things that uh, it's been quite interesting. Is he, so with with all the you know he he did he had his science and that was a he's had his science a bit, bit of a simple way to put it but you know he had his work which is kind of quite clear. What do you think it was about? Uh, and maybe you know what is it for you uh, that makes you want to write about science and and share it with people. Well, when I was writing about physics, it's because I just thought it was so beautiful and fascinating, interesting that everybody would love it if they just could understand what we're talking about. And so I, I just felt like uh, the drive to always felt the drive to, to tell people about this beautiful stuff. And, you know, so they, you know, uh, yeah. And, and, and I wanted them on some more intellectual level. I wanted them to understand what is science about? How do we know these things? Not only what, what do we know, but how do we know what's our, you know, why do we think we believe this? You know, why is it good to follow these things? And why should you believe it today? Of course, in our, in our American, you know, 
ridiculous, uh, you know, culture here um, right now. You know, you're defending science. You're going, no, you can't just uh, say, oh, it's no, there's no global warming or, you know, to understand what, you know, or the anti-evolution people who, who you know, send up these people with ridiculous arguments that, that you know, and people buy it. I, you know, you need to understand what is the, um, you know, what, what is the difference between pseudoscience and science? So that's just another Another, you know, like uh, something that I think Stephen and I both felt strongly about that, that we wanted people to, um, you know, to know the difference between pseudoscience and science so they don't get misled and so people don't make the wrong decisions. And, um, yeah, so I, I think uh, and, I, you know, I think Stephen felt the same way. He wanted to, he, he felt that, that, that people would would. would find science beautiful and it was beautiful and deep and important to the human experience, but there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of people uh, making it accessible. And especially uh, when he started, I mean, he was not, you know, he's not just a pioneer in black holes. He was a a pioneer in explaining science to the public because in the 1980s, when he wrote that book, there were not, there were very few um, uh, popular science books. So people writing broadly about science is really, um, really the key. And that's what Stephen did. I mean, he wrote about his own work or his own field, I should say. See, it's like he wrote about his own field, not just a, not about his own work. So that's the difference. So some, a lot of people will write about their own little corner of what they did and try to make it sound earth shattering. But Stephen wrote about the whole field, right? So like a brief history of time, it wasn't a brief history of my work, okay. you know, it, it, um, it included his work, but it was about, um, you know, it was a, it was some beautiful, big uh, topic. And, you know, and so anyway, I, that was all those tangents. So you, that's probably not really relevant, but I'm just no, saying no, that there no, are many no, books. That is, I mean, that's, that's about 50% of what we're talking about, how his book, his passion for sh- sharing what he loved. Well, he was, so he was one of the people, it was, you know, him and Steven Weinberg and Carl Sagan, you know, they were the ones in, back then who were the pioneers who started this huge, like, in, you know, deluge of popular science books that we have today. And they all came from those guys, you know, doing it back then. Um, and and it showed, you know, that people saw, and Feynman eventually, uh, a little bit later, I think, you know, but not that long later with his anecdote books. So they, they all showed people, that, oh, people, you know, showed the publishers, I guess, and the other potential authors that, that people would be interested in this stuff. Um, and, you know, I don't think they had high hopes for it. I know I heard stories about A Brief History of Time that they, they didn't have, you know, huge hopes for it. I mean, they, they didn't think it was a, a, they didn't, you know, totally dismiss it because I think he got a decent advance for it, but they didn't have huge hopes for it either. They just thought, um, you know, this is like something to try and it'll be interesting, but they didn't expect it to be nearly what it turned out to be. Oh, who could expect that? But um, so, you know, so I think that he helped really to pave the way, um, you know, to, to um you know for 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 the you know what we have today and, and just to touch on something you said earlier that you've reminded me so one someone else we talked to said the, the the part of the strength of that book was its clarity it was just so clear a brief history of time yeah <laughs> so, yeah so it's just like... well Stephen did not feel that way let, let me just say that really uh, you know really yeah in fact, that's why we wrote a briefer history of time. Right. He said, yeah, he said that, yeah. And it's, you know, the beginning of a brief history of time was pretty, 
clear. And it got hard to understand after that, which is why Stephen kind of himself said, uh, you know, that it's like the, I think he, he said, I forgot how he put it, but um, the, you know, book that sold the, the most and was read the least, you know, the average person found it tough going about after I forgot, you know, the first hundred pages or so it started to get hard for people. Yeah, and um, I'm one of those people. That's yeah. specifically why he asked me to write a briefer history with him. I so that's see, kind of right. funny. Uh, and that's why it's called a briefer. It's not really briefer. We, you know, the, we, we had debated calling it a clearer history of time. <laughs> so it's about the same length, um, but it's um, we we worked on making it, you know, more understandable. And and then that, that experience was so such a good experience. Then I I proposed to him that we write the second book, the Grand Design, because that book was based on his um, his ideas that he had uh, his new new ideas in the time. I think we started running around 2006. Um, they were, it was work he had done just over the last oh five or six years, and it, and his work was <laughs> developing as we were writing the book, which made it hard too. Because at one point we had written you know like a whole passage of like five or six pages, and then I'm going to see him and we're, we're supposed to be moving on, and he wants to make these changes, and I say to him. But Stephen, uh, we went over this last time. This is how it works. Da, da, da. He says, he says, like, I've discovered it doesn't work that way. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> I say, <laughs> I suppose that's a nice problem to have. At least uh, you know you've got it right. No, no, it wasn't a nice problem to have. No. A nice problem? No, it's not a nice. No, it's not. No, 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 no. A nice, nice would have been. Oh, we finished that. Let's move on. <laughs> And was that so? Was that always was that what was driving him really? It, it, you know, when he's taking this time, it. it I, I like the idea of him as someone, and like you said yourself, as a person who rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. You know, I think sometimes there's an image of a of a writer that just they sit down at the keyboard and just you know it it comes out first time. That's I think my friend Michael Shermer called that the Amadeus myth. <laughs> uh, or Mozart, you know, because they say that about Mozart too. And when you look, and I did some research on Mozart, um, uh, actually for the for Elastic, and and, um, and the truth is, he he wrote and rewrote and rewrote constantly, and he and, and he constantly looking for places the uh, uh, pianos to play this stuff on. He, and he you know, and he had to. I forget this. I forget all the details, but he had to find another. For a while, he didn't have a piano. He couldn't write. He had to go find, you know, borrow some. I mean, he was, um, you know, I forgot the story about how the myth happened, and it's not really relevant for for this, I guess. But, but um, oh, actually, I do remember now. Was some, some later writer made it up, and right. it somehow got into the, you know, and, and um, but they've done great detailed studies of his letters, and you know, they found no, it wasn't like that. And, and you know, I'm not saying that there is nobody in existence who's like that, but that's image people have just like the stupid movies like this movie about steven which uh i was very i, I was went was invited to uh the premiere in hollywood and and um and you know even though the movie was like as steven said broadly accurate i think was his comment <laughs> yeah um you know and, and people thought that that was a um you know that he was endorsing the movie which i guess he was but i also know steven and i know when he says broadly accurate he also means um not necessarily accurate in the details <laughs> You know, that, that, was, that was a good, I, I was a perfect Stevenism, you know. <laughs> that was physicist Leonard Mladenow. Next, James Lloyd, staff writer at BBC Focus, talks to Christoph Gelfard. 
Hawking was Christoph's supervisor while he worked on his PhD at Cambridge University, studying black holes and the origin of the universe. So Christoph, first of all, I was wondering what was your connection to Stephen Hawking and, and when did your connection with him start? I was uh, Professor Hawking's PhD student from uh, 1999 or 2000, actually, until 2006 at, uh, in the Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics Department at uh, Cambridge University. And I met him after my what, what was called the part three of the mathematical tripos, which is a mathematical and the, the last year undergrad slash grad course uh, at Cambridge University. So that during that year, there were a few hundred students from pretty much everywhere uh, on Earth studying mathematics. And that's where we all kind of had the chance of seeing Stephen uh, from, from now and then. And then at the end of the year, there is a, an exam. And if you're uh, lucky, say, you get to work with some of the professors for you automatically get a grant for to, to study for a PhD at Cambridge and so I got that and then you get to meet all the professors and uh, I met Stephen and he offered me to become his PhD student. And so what was he like to work with? Did, did you get to spend much time with him? Well, um, yes. A lot of time, yes, indeed. The first year, not so much, because he was writing a book. But uh, his philosophy was to spend as much time as possible with the people who worked with him. And that includes his students, his PhD students. We pretty much were with him all the time. When he was traveling, when he was at Cambridge, when he was everywhere, he would bring us along and uh, we would work with him everywhere. And how did that feel? Did it, was it daunting? Because here, here you were a, a new student, and obviously Stephen Hawking obviously has this almost a celebrity kind of status. Was it was it daunting, or, or did it feel like he was more approachable? Well, the the celebrity side of thing, we we actually didn't quite feel that, uh, except when we were. Even that, 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 these were just glimpses of his life. It took more, more and more of his time with, with, uh, with the years. But in, in the beginning, that, that really was a side thing. So the daunting part was not the celebrity thing because in academia, you didn't really, well, that was not the point. We didn't care or were not interested in that, basically. And uh, the daunting part was that he was extremely, extremely hard to work with in the sense that he didn't really, uh, he, he wasn't interested in in small talks uh, in science at all. He only wanted to discuss or tackle the big problems, the big questions. And that was, that really was something daunting for his students because we all were juniors in the beginning. Not so, not so much at the end, but in the beginning we were juniors, and we had to tackle, yeah, the hardest problems in theoretical physics. So, what kind of problems were these then that he, that he was concerned with, and, and that you were working on? Well, for instance, I believe a couple of students before me and a few after me, we all had the same, with uh, the same PhD topic to begin with which was called M theory cosmology and uh, roughly speaking that means uh, figuring everything out 
<laughs> if you wanted to translate that in plain English. And uh, so obviously that, that, that was an unattainable goal, or maybe it was, but none of us was good enough. I don't know. Was this kind of a theory of everything then, essentially? That was trying to combine, yeah. combine what, cos- cosmology and quantum physics? Was and, it? and a theory that doesn't exist. Right. That, that, that's the point. Uh, M theory is something that is M is for magical or whatever. It, it's something that, uh, or mother, it's a theory, uh, a, a theory in string theory that encompasses the five known string theories. And we have absolutely no clue what that theory might, might be. And to do cosmology in a theory that we do not know anything about is a bit hard. <laughs> <laughs> because cosmology is about our universe and its history and, 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 and rewriting the whole history of the universe. But anyway, that was, the, that was the topic that we were assigned or agreed to work on when we were naive in the first few months. And then we got specialized in, in, in different topics, all of us, and I became specialized in what we call the black hole information paradox, which is... Uh, a problem that's been lingering around since Stephen discovered in the 1970s that black holes have a temperature and uh, that they radiate stuff, which apparently, and first uh, calculations, the calculations that he made in the 1970s, basically said that what radiates out of black holes is absolutely independent of what fell in in the first place. And that means that the, the black holes kind of bleach cosmic history. It's gone. It was there, got swallowed by a black hole. Black holes radiate that stuff away, but that stuff has nothing to do with what came in. So part of our universe's memory was gone forever, not changed, just gone. And scientists don't like that. Because that means that physics is not the right way to, to, to write or find out the history of the universe. And uh, that, that problem is called the black hole information paradox. There, nowadays, pretty much everyone is convinced that somehow what fell in comes out, but no, no one has really managed to figure out exactly how. Right, right. That's still a mystery. So did, did Hawking admit he was wrong then with that in the end? Yeah, he did. That was actually what my PhD was about. And I, I was against him uh, admitting he was wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but he did anyway. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't think the problem is settled. I think he liked to be wrong because he kind of was wrong on all his bets. <laughs> but he wasn't wrong that often, was he? In the big things, in the big um, no, theories? of course not, of course not. The thing is, to, w- one of the qualities that I would uh, give him that I don't didn't see in so many out there is that he had the in- intuition. He he could see beyond the maths. He did not just rely on the mathematics to 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 infer what might exist beyond. And that's that's a very rare quality. Only a handful of scientists have that quality every century, I would say. You you get extremely good technicians, much better ones than Stephen, most probably. You get a lot of those. 
and 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 that's that's absolutely brilliant. But Stephen had something different: this intuition, the feeling that something was right or, or wrong. He was obviously a very good mathematician as well, but uh, he he went beyond that, I believe. So he could he could kind of see the bigger picture beyond the nitty gritty yeah. of the the mathematical equations themselves. That's right, and uh, not just that, but anytime you would you would. Uh, show him some new research or new results, he would immediately know where to point the finger, where the problem was, where it would hurt, say, or where it would be interesting beyond what was written in, in a paper. He, he he could feel that immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also wondering what he was like as a person. Um, you mentioned that he didn't do kind of scientific small talk did he do any kind of small talk at all because when when we hear him speaking yeah. generally it's in quite grand statements did he you know did he um kind of talk about the weather and about what he was having for dinner and things like that yeah but that's why I, st- I, I specified scientific small talks before because yes he did have um it, it was very lively to be around him he, he made jokes and had fun and uh we had uh, we were discussing many different things, including movies and stuff to do outside, restaurants to go to, where he would uh, bring me for my birthday to to give an example of some of, of the kind of thoughts he might have for other people. It's not just me; it's even the, the other students as well. And uh, uh, how he would no, he was uh, he he was generous with his thoughts and time and. And uh, in in his uh, joy of life, say. And um, so, did you say he took you out somewhere for for your birthday? Yeah, yeah, he did that many times. It was usually the time of the year we were in the United States, around uh, Santa Barbara or California, because he he, he had a, an office there. And uh, I think that for his health, it was good for him not to spend the winter in England. So I, I know, don't know exactly, or it was just because he liked to be in, in, in California at that time of the year. And it just happened that it was my birthday every year around that, so he took me to nice places. Um, do you have a favourite memory, I was wondering, of your time that you spent with Stephen? Well, there, I have many. I really have many. I mean, it, it was uh, probably the, the, the five, six years I spent with him nonstop were probably the richest and fullest years I've spent in my life. Um, maybe for, for, for different reasons than now, but to, um, you know, when you're, you're at the start of something, that's always when it's the most um, fulfilling. When you begin to understand, when you suddenly understand, when someone's there to, to sometimes hold your hand and show you the way. Uh, after that, uh, he, he was the last person I, I had in my history, personal history, that was holding my hand. After mm-hmm. him, I was on my own, basically. And so he showed me the, the path of thoughts and way of life and never to give up and trust oneself. It, I know it's abstract. What I'm, I, it's, I can sound very abstract, what I say now, but it, it's... Uh, it's a whole. It's a bit hard to just pick out one memory. That was Christoph Golfard. 
For the next interview, Daniel Bennett, the editor of BBC Focus, chats to physicist and author Jim Al-Khalili. He was the inaugural winner of the Stephen Hawking Medal for Science Communication, which was presented to him by the man himself. Did you ever meet Stephen? Yes, yes, on, on, on a number of occasions. Um, I think the, the first time I met him properly and managed to have an, a conversation with him was in 20, was it 2010 or 2011. I'd have to look it up. Um, he gave a lecture at the Royal Albert Hall and I was asked to introduce him. So, so that was quite something. I don't know, five, 6,000 audience and uh, going out there. And I remember get, going out, uh, just, just before we went out on stage, I, I said uh, to, uh, to Stephen, I said, well, good luck, break a leg. <laughs> <laughs> and his nurse said, oh, don't say that. I, could, well, I might push him off the stage or something. You know, <laughs> tempting fate. <laughs> Uh, but but I mean, it, and it was that was the first time I, I I managed to have a conversation with him. When I first started talking to him, I hadn't realised that um, you know he has his you know he twitches you know his cheek uh, muscle and eyebrows for yes and cheek muscles for no or something like that. And uh, and, I, and and you know with with most people when they meet him because he doesn't respond, you sort of fill in the gap with blabbering on yourself. Yeah, especially with someone you admire. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so you just sort of, just sort of fill in the gaps, of, you know, space and just talking. And then his nurse said, did you, uh, you know, you've spoken to Stephen before, you, do you know what he was saying? And I said, oh, well, sorry, um, no. Uh, she said, well, there were lots of yeses and nos in there. <laughs> you were talking, but you probably missed them. Um, so, yeah, so that was, that was a very, very nice occasion. It was incredible. He gave, he gave a lecture, he was up on stage, 6,000 people. You could hear a pin drop for an hour and a half or so. Um, and he was talking about cosmology and talking about his life and so on. And he could have sat on stage and just someone just played a recording of his voice, but he was obviously adamant for it not to be impersonal. So although it was pre-recorded, you know, every paragraph, you know, he had to uh, activate it to get it going. Right, yeah. So, you know, so, so, you know, he was controlling what he was saying. Uh, rather than just sitting there on stage to be, you know, almost looked at helplessly immobile while his mechanised voice rang out, you know, at least he, in some sense, he was delivering a lecture. Slides. Then, then, of course, the second time I met him was when I, I uh, was the recipient of the inaugural Stephen Hawking Medal. Um, you know, he was there on stage to uh, uh, to award me with it, as it were, you know. Although obviously someone else had to physically give me the, the medal, but I, so I was very, uh, uh, yeah, very, very honoured. You know, there was a lot of lot of big names and, and uh, you know, in 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 science there in the audience and on stage. So it was quite quite something. Apparently, he chose that he watched one of my TV documentaries, my my um, quantum two-parter and quantum mechanics, and he, he liked the way I'd explain things, and that had swayed him. I don't know who else he he had in mind, but I know the second year Neil deGrasse Tyson won it, so uh, I beat Neil deGrasse Tyson to the title of science communicator. <laughs> and what do, what did that feel like getting a an award like that from someone who I imagine must have been one of you someone you had, had inspired you yeah very strange because you know if you think about it you know the, the, the recipient of the stephen hawking medal for science communication should should surely be stephen hawking <laughs> in in as much as a brief history of time sold you know more copies than the bible or whatever yeah. the, the number is you know i i still work as an admissions tutor in the physics department here at surrey and you know so i read all the personal statements of all the you know the students and invariably in their personal statements you know they got switched on to physics because they read a brief history of time now i don't know whether to some extent 
And this has been the case, you know, for the last 20, 20 plus years, 30 years since it came out, whether people feel they, that's what they should say. Yeah, well, you know, anyone who wants to do physics surely must have read A Brief History of Time and it just becomes something. But I suspect, no, these, these students, these teenagers continue to be inspired by his book. So, you know, I might make the you know, TV documentary and so on, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm not reaching and inspiring as many, anything you like, the orders of magnitude Stephen Hawking's doing, you know, just, just being a character in The Simpsons, for goodness sakes, reaches out to, you know, areas of society that no one else could, not even the Brian Coxes of this world can do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it was something, you know, it, it, it meant a lot to me to be, to, to, to get to be a recipient of that award, to be awarded it by Stephen Hawking himself. It was pretty, pretty special. So one of the things, one of the reasons I, I thought it'd be great to talk to you is, you know, you both, uh, to me anyway, for someone looking from the outside, share this um, desire to share science with people just as much as you love science, uh, you mm. know, research and the, the work itself. It seems seemed to be just as important to you to, to share it with people and to explain it to people. Um, you know, wh- why is that so important? To, to Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, that, you're right. You know, there aren't that many scientists i mean there are scientists who 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 communicate you know who enjoy communication um but there aren't that many who would you know that, that it's what i would say i'm sure it's what stephen would have said derive as much pleasure you know sheer pleasure out of finding something out for yourself and then telling everyone else about it you know i i couldn't imagine finding out something and then keeping it to myself or publishing it in a paper that half a dozen people are going to read and then forget about. You know, I want to shout it from the rooftops. And that's what Stephen liked to do. He liked to, you know, end, he was endlessly curious about the universe and, and, and his desire to tell people how endlessly curious he was about the universe was just as strong. So, yeah, we do, we do have that in common. You know, there, you know there's the, there are, you know, and Brian Cox, obviously, is another example, but, you know, going back into history, you know, people like Carl Sagan, of course, is, an, is an, an, another example of someone who, you know, it's not enough just to, to learn about how the, the universe works. You know, what's the point of learning about how the universe works if you don't tell everyone else about it? You know, if you derive pleasure out of your curiosity about the world, then surely it should give you pleasure seeing other people also, you know, amazed by this by this fact you know and that's and that's what he did great answer um and then just just finally you know you mentioned earlier you you work uh in the admissions um for the science for surrey mm. for those students who are reading this book and are being inspired about it you know and they're just starting their career or maybe they're in their career and they'd like to you know go and do what you do talk to people about science what can they learn from his approach to his work and his life i i i think Stephen changed the rules of the game when it came to explaining, communicating science to a wider audience. I mean, I remember, you know, I was, I was an undergraduate in the 80s. I was an undergraduate before A Brief History of Time came out. And, and you know, there were the popularizers of science around, you know, sort of John Gribbin, Frank Close, um, Paul Davis, John Barrow. Um, but popular science books were niche. They were there for the for the people who were interested in science, had an amateur interest, but you know looked out for them. Um, when Brief History of Time came out, it just changed the rules of the game. As you know, famously, everyone wanted to have a copy on their on their coffee table, even if they didn't read it. And since then, 
there's been this explosion in in science communication and in the uh, respectability that science communication uh, got. Because until then, you know, you were either the scientist who does the, 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 the research and win Nobel Prizes and so on, or you were the communicator. There were very few people, you know, maybe, maybe people like Richard Feynman and one or two others who excelled at both being the, the great thinkers and the great explainers. And Stephen Hawking was the great thinker and explainer of, of our generation, of his generation. Um, and, and so... It, it, he made it possible for, for people to think, yeah, okay, I want to do the science, but I also want to explain it to other people. And that's also a valid thing to do. That's also a respectable thing to do. Until then, it was pretty much, you know, if you're smart, do the smart stuff, which is learning and, you know, discovering and doing the research. Leave all the communicating of science to those who haven't got it in them to do the research, as though it is a, is a lesser thing. Uh, and 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 Stephen changed that with just with the publication of one book. Uh, of course, once he was in the public eye, and it helped. You know, his disability in that sense made him a, a focus of attention. Uh, but he made use of that, and 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 uh, you know that was it. He became you know the most famous scientist since Albert Einstein. But uh, but in terms of communicating, uh, yeah, I think uh, he he changed the game. You know, I hadn't thought of it like that as well. I think. Just, just hearing you speak about it made me realise as well that it was a bit of a turning point in that it also became something that had currency and, and that was quite cool. Yeah, that's right. It became, it became cool to have a science book about cosmology and the nature of space and time. Before that, that, that was not a thing. Right? No. <laughs> that didn't exist. We really might not have, you know, such a great wealth. You know, when you look at the science shelves now, there's... Incredible wealth of great writers and, and great books. Yeah, absolutely. And any publisher, nonfiction publisher, will tell you. Brief history of time changed the game. They realised there's a huge market here. Suddenly, everyone is writing. I mean, I you know I think about all my mates in science communication, and so on. I'm I'm, I'm forever you know, reading books, and we're sort of adding you know, blurb words of uh, you know greatest things since sliced bread type things that go on the back of the book. Everyone's writing a popular science book. You know, that wasn't the, the, the dumb thing before Brief History of Time. Now it is. That was physicist and author Jim Al-Khalili. Finally, Jason Goodyear, the commissioning editor of BBC Focus, talks to the Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees, who was two years behind Hawking at Cambridge University. Obviously, you, you knew Stephen for, for a very long time. I believe you were at uh, university at, at, at around the same time. Yes, well, I was two years junior to him, and I joined the research group when he was already starting his third year doing his PhD. So did, did he make much of an impression on you at that, at that point? Um, well, I got to know him, and that was the time when he realised he'd got this fatal disease and was already walking slowly with a stick. And at that time, of course, his expected uh, life expectancy was rather low, and many people didn't think he would even finish his PhD. And so, as he himself said, uh, when he finished his PhD and when he got married, uh, his uh, um, gloom lifted, and he realised that he did have prospects. What was he? What was he like at this point? Um, what was his personality like? Um, well, 
then and always throughout his life, he has been extraordinarily normal uh, in that despite his immensely frustrating uh, disabilities, especially the difficulty of communicating, uh, he has maintained very wide interests in uh, music and theatre and also has um, enjoyed travelling to exotic places and, of course, has been committed to various uh, uh, causes. I mean, nuclear disarmament, um, the Palestinians and the National Health Service in particular. Yeah, I mean, was, was there any evi evidence at this early point that he would go on to be such a great scientist? Um, well, I think um, he had a good start in that uh, he and I were both supervised by uh, Dennis Sharma, who was a very inspiring supervisor, who had a very broad feel for the subject, both observational and theoretical, and uh, he gave us all good advice. And the advice he gave to Stephen was that he should go to London to listen to lectures by Roger Penrose, who had been developing new uh, mathematical techniques that allowed him to uh, uh, consider gravitational collapse when there was no special symmetry. And uh, Stephen went to these lectures, and his early papers, uh, some of them with, with um, Roger Penrose, uh, were really using these new techniques. So he was fortunate to have... Uh, uh, a stimulus from Roger Penrose, who was a really great figure in the subject. And also he was fortunate that this was the time when observations were revealing the first evidence for the Big Bang and the first evidence for black holes. So this was a good time for young people to be starting in this subject. So what qualities do you think that he had that made him, you know, such a great thinker and such a great scientist? Well, he clearly had a great mathematical ability and insight and great determination. And as I say, he was lucky in uh, going into a subject that was opening up and which uh, required talents well matched to those he had. Sure. And um, as well as um, being, being known for his, his science work, he's also uh, was very well known and still is well known for being a great science communicator and, uh, and a champion of science. Um, yes, of course, and uh, uh, that breakthrough came when his book published in 1987 uh, became a huge bestseller to uh, his and everyone else's surprise, and that uh, catapulted in him uh, to international celebrity and uh, made people interested in uh, not only him as a personality uh, and in someone who... Uh, despite uh, uh, the imprisoned body was roaming the cosmos, but this also uh, gave him a further stimulus to engage in outreach events. Sort of looking back now on, on his body of work, what, what do you think his long-term legacy will be, scientific or, or otherwise? Uh, well, I think um, scientifically uh, he will rate as one of the uh, key people who have uh, pushed forward our understanding of gravity in the last 50 years, and in particular uh, for understanding black holes better. And the paper he wrote in 1974, uh, which was uh, the so-called black hole explosions paper, was important as the first quantitative attempt to link together uh, Einstein's theory of gravity with the micro world of the quantum. And that paper has implications which are still being debated today. Sure. 
And uh, what, what do you think, say, um, young scientists who, who, who are looking up to people like Stephen as a role model can, le- can learn from his life? Well, I think one can learn that there are huge satisfactions in doing science, and even someone with his disadvantages was able to have a uh, full and varied life, um, and also that the subject he chose was a subject which is still immensely challenging and fascinating to a younger generation who will follow and extend his work. That was the Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast. Look out for a special edition about Professor Stephen Hawking, brought to you by BBC Focus and BBC History magazine, on sale on the 18th of April. In our March issue, which is on sale now, we look at the effects of loneliness on our mental health, investigate the ways you can stress-proof your life, and find out if we can ever prevent natural disasters. And of course, there's much more inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.